Go with me to Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. Where we read, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The rest withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Not too long ago, my wife Julie and I watched a movie. A movie called Mine. It's an interesting movie. I don't remember all the details, but it concerns a soldier in Afghanistan who loses his partner in a firefight. And as he's trying to get away from the place where the exchange of gunfire was happening... He steps on a landmine, which does not immediately go off. He hears this click, and he stays on the mine. He believes that if he removes his foot from that mine, it explodes and he dies. So he stays, trying to figure out what to do. He stands on that mine for 52 hours. Imagine what that would be like. The movie takes us through the harrowing visions that go through this guy's mind. He's tortured on this, on this mind. Uh, he can't move in any direction for any reason. For hour after hour, day and night, in heat and in cold. And yes, there are both of those in Afghanistan. Fending off hungry animals who are trying to eat him. I guess he might be telling them, look, you really don't want this meal. <laughs> Sometimes having, having, having to endure enemy gunfire with no way to get cover. He's just out there, open, exposed. And we share his terror as he waits for the reinforcements that never come. The people who are going to get him off the mine. He keeps hearing promises about another battalion another platoon of men that will come and help him they never come and they never come he has flashbacks to this family that he knows he's never going to see again he has conversations with his dead partner who appears in hallucinations and ladles guilt and fear on him because he represents the accusations of his own tortured mind in taking human form hours crawl by and our soldier simmers in fear, in regret, in despair, in anger, guilt. He catalogs in his imprisoned mind the hundred horrors that it conspired to put him in his grave and everything that's led him up to that point in his life. And from time to time, this figure comes out of the desert, a strange apparition that may or may not be real, depending on what real actually means. He tells our soldier to move on, accept the consequences. After all, there is a 7% chance that the mine is a dud. 7%. Those are your odds. A 7% chance that if you walk away, nothing will happen to you. Aren't those odds good enough? Spoiler alert. The soldier finally does step off the mine and nothing happens. And that one step 
totally reframes and redefines everything that happened before. Turns out that the horrible possibilities that had made these last two days a nightmare were nothing but phantasms. He had been imprisoned in a little tin box full of nothing. Few, if any of us, have had as much apparently legitimate cause for anxiety as this soldier. But many of us have had minds of our own that we've been standing on. In their way and on their scale, they paralyze us with fear. They paralyze us with anxiety. In our own worlds, each of us hears the click of the landmine trigger under our feet. We visit the doctor, click. We look at our bank account, click. We see our children drift from the faith, click. We feel growing aridness in our marriages, click. We hear rumors of cutbacks and layoffs at work, click. We watch the news, click. We wonder why there's so much suffering in the world and when it will be our turn to endure it. Click. We remember that we must die. Click. To help us live life on these minds, we turn to all kinds of directions. Some of us are radical control freaks. Maybe you know this person. Somebody who is desperately trying to make sure life behaves itself by rushing around supervising every detail of our existence and everybody else's terrified by the possibility that somehow, somewhere, there is a subatomic particle that is doing something without our permission. Do you know that person? I know that person. Do you know that person? Others of us curl up in a fetal position, completely unmanned by the slightest inconvenience, hag-written by the inevitability that something is going to go wrong, and we don't know what it is, and there's nothing we can do about it. And we don't have the mental, spiritual, financial, physical, emotional resources to deal with it. Scripture knows this well. For example, we have the, we've got the example of Martha, whom I have come to call the matron saint of anxiety. Martha in Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. Now it happened, it happened as they went that he entered, he, Jesus, entered a certain village. And a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. The matron saint of anxiety. But in our text this morning, the Apostle Paul takes on this demon anxiety that possesses so many of us, that imprisons us in our fears, that enslaves us to drugs and alcohol and panic and tramples on our minds, tramples on our hearts like a giant despair. And our Apostle calls us to victory over this enemy. He says, be anxious for how much? Nothing. The word Paul uses for anxious here has to do not with being cautious or prudent. Now, nor normally, I, it's my habit to preach from the King James Bible. I have many good reasons why I love the King James more than all, verses, all other versions. I'm not King James only, obviously. But it's my, my uh, habit to do that. Didn't do that here. 
Because the King James Version is just built to be misunderstood by 21st century minds. It says, be careful for nothing. And that is exactly the opposite of where I wanted to go. When the King James translators used that word, it was exactly the right word for this. But no, neither Jesus, who says, take no thought for tomorrow, same word, nor Paul in this case, intends to prohibit careful planning, foresight, wisdom, or prudence. That's not what's being forbidden here. Jesus, after all, did not rebuke Martha for cooking and cleaning. The enemy here is not a well-organized, disciplined life. Let go and let God doesn't mean that. The enemy here is that nagging, stomach-churning, hunted feeling. The feeling that life itself is a predator. And that all the events of the day, seen and unseen, are threats. Stalking us. Waiting to strike. Malevolent. Cruel. Worse yet, indifferent. Overwhelming. The feeling that we're naked and exposed before all of this and there's nothing we can do. Some of these lurking predators are very real. Others are phantoms our minds create. Real or imagined, they feast on our fear. They leave our joys mangled and bleeding in the jungles of our thoughts. And just here, Paul gives us a rifle to take on the predators. Trusting, believing prayer. This kind of prayer is a weapon against anxiety. He says, be anxious for nothing. Let's look at that in terms of a defensive posture. A defensive posture. This is a command. Paul prohibits a certain attitude. The Holy Spirit, speaking in the word, assumes jurisdiction over your heart, over your mind, over your thought choices. He says, there is nothing in all the world that has the right to terrify you. That's a take-home line. There is nothing in all the world that has the right to terrify you. Before you knew God, there was the infinite wrath of provoked justice hanging over your head. And if anything, you weren't scared enough of that. But now, Christ has reconciled you to God by his blood. Death itself has no sting. And have the little gnats of daily life any greater power than that? God commands you to look at the realities of the gospel and to realize that for the child of God, nothing can happen that has not been vetted by the infinite wisdom of love and love of Almighty God. Nothing that can happen that has not been managed by infinite benevolent power. The whole universe is at the beck and call of one who cherishes you cherishes you as the darling of his heart, as the apple of his eye. Be anxious for nothing. And then we look at this, be anxious for nothing, from an offensive posture. You're well defended. Now take offense. In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Three weapons, prayer, supplication, thanksgiving. Let's look at them. Prayer. The word does mean petition. It does contain that element, but not primarily. Paul begins with worship. 
He begins with adoration. Our assault on anxiety begins with a reflection on who God is. We fortify our joy by ascribing to God and therefore reminding ourselves all the attributes of his being, all the attributes of his character. That's armor. That's weaponry that we put on to deal with anxiety, who God is. Why does that matter? When you're anxious, why does it matter who God is? It matters because who God is, He is to and for you. The attributes of God are not a bunch of academic concepts sitting intelligently in a book on a shelf. They are the realities that shape every aspect of your life. They guard you. The attributes of God are in as much as promises of God. That he is for you. He is to you. Psalm 18 puts it this way. I will love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my strength in whom I trust. My shield and the horn of my salvation. My stronghold. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. Psalm 29.2 Give to the Lord the glory to his, do his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Before you start putting quarters in your spiritual vending machine, take some time to consider just who it is you're addressing. Time spent in this kind of adoration fortifies prayer. It builds confidence that God is both able and willing to intervene in our defense. I look up at the sky and I don't have the slightest problem believing that God has the power to do anything I need. I see the galactic clusters spread out into infinity. I see all their beauty. I see all their size. There is no way that the person that made that can't help me. My problem has always been how could somebody who could do that find time to care about me? Is he really interested in me? A God that big. A God of galactic clusters. Well, the God of galactic, galactic clusters is also the God of quarks, leptons, and muons. Subatomic particles. This kind of adoration, while reminding us of the awesome capabilities of our Creator also drives home the fact that he is our redeemer who took on flesh for the specific purpose of having that flesh mangled and torn for our salvation. As Paul argues in Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? What, says God? I'm going to give my own son blood. And then I'm going to spill that blood for your sins. And then I'm not going to meet your daily needs. Seriously? I'm not going to take care of you after I've done that. Seriously? Adoration reinforces, armors, and arms the prayers with which we approach God. Then we go to supplication. That's our next weapon. Supplication is an acknowledged an acknowledgement of our own need, our poverty, our insufficiency. In many ways, supplication is the polar opposite of adoration. 
where adoration locates all of our resources in God, supplication abandons all hope in the self. It's a confession of entire dependence and an affirmation of entire trust, an act of childlike faith. Resting on this foundation of adoration, which brings us face to face with the reliable, trustworthy God, supplication places all in his hands, believing, resting, trusting, relying, knowing him as the shelter of our body and soul. God is incomprehensible, and I may not understand his answers or his actions, but I can rest on his promises and character. Is there any remaining doubt? Well, Paul gives us yet a third weapon to demolish it, with thanksgiving. Adoration looks up to God in his glory and power. Supplication looks in to our need and our dependence and our insufficiency. Thanksgiving looks back to what God has already done in the lives of his people. On the one hand, the generosity of God imposes upon us a moral duty to approach God in a spirit of gratitude. But in addition, giving sincere thanks stirs up joy in the heart. There's a limit to how unhappy you can be when you're giving thanks. That's an important reason why God requires thanksgiving of it. It's not that his ego needs the stroking. It's that we need the reminder of who God has been. And in this sense, you can call thanksgiving an apologetic. They're the gratitudinous argument, if you will. In giving thanks, we're dwelling on the myriad of things that God has already done, and we're running that through the grid of God's immutability. What's that? What's the immutability of God? Unchangeableness. That's why what he has done matters. What he has done, that he will do. What he has been, that he will be. Thanksgiving drives that reality into the core of our hearts. It stirs us up into ferocious prayer. We know who we're dealing with. We know who we're addressing. We know who's listening. God's care for us is normal, not extraordinary. That this immutable God will be now what he has been for all eternity. That his changelessness is a guarantee that he will answer our prayers as he has always done. Wisely, lovingly, and powerfully. In thanksgiving, we bask in the habits of God. Now, Paul uses an, enemy, an idiom here that might cause a little concern. He says, let your requests be made known to God. Does that phrase make anybody itch? Let your requests be made known to God. Wait a minute. Made known to God? You mean he, he didn't already know? You mean he's surprised to find me in this state? Well, no. It's a figure of speech. Meaning that we're presenting our needs before him like we present our offerings as an act of worship. To seek God in this way, in fact, is another form of adoration. It's an acknowledgement, a proclamation, if you will, that God is such a God as can act savingly in our needs. In our sufferings, we present to God a portion of what already belongs to Him. 
And in so doing, we worship him as the one who provides all. In our prayers, we present the concerns, our concerns as the venue in which God will reveal his glory one way or another. This perspective, here in, as in all things, just like this morning, is God-centered. We approach God asking for a revelation of his glory, asking to see him in action. And here, all God's attributes conspire to strengthen us, which is exactly where Paul goes in the next verse. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Heavy promise here. In prayer, we're spending time in the conscious and contemplated presence of a being who is in and of himself entirely at peace. A being who is beyond and above all need. A being who is the unaided source of all existence. Here, Paul's promising that the absolute composure and rest of God will be ours. He's appealing to the incomprehensibility of God. This peace transcends any attempt to comprehend it. It may even be at odds with the evidence. Those who have traveled the farthest on this road to God's peace are the ones who can enjoy that peace when the whole world is collapsing around them. Interestingly, the language here, the language he uses to convey this idea is actually, get this, military language. He uses military language to describe the peace. Shall guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. We're not promised here that we're not going to have any problems. Quite the opposite. We are sent into battle. The word, that word guard means to garrison, to leave troops behind in defense of a position. Difficulty is assumed. But in the scope of Pauline thought, given such ideas as union with Christ and the intercession of the Holy Spirit, not to mention the intercession of Christ, alive and active with us, supplying us with the peace of God, defensively, what evil can penetrate that? Offensively, what evil can stand against it? What's guarded here? Your heart, your mind, your emotions, your thoughts, your feelings, your ideas, your entire way of experiencing reality. This kind of worshipful prayer, this exploration of the presence of God, this abiding in the attributes of our Creator, our Redeemer, this is a total reframing of our entire existence, a totally new way of engaging with life. So garrisoned, we can look at the very worst that a fallen world can throw at us, and we can reply, is that all you got? Is that all you got? So garrison we can face fire and sword, pestilence and rage, deprivation and persecution through it all, and we can be calm. In another place, 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 10, Paul describes his peace in this way. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. 
struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. So here is the the Bible's anti-anxiety medication. Worshipful, adoring, grateful, God-centered, God-focused prayer. By which means the Holy Spirit himself builds a fortress in your heart, builds a fortress in your mind, gives you a peace that no mere human being will ever understand, including you, by the way. When you hear the click of another of life's landmines, defuse that mind right here. Lord our God, we thank you for such a fortress in which you encase our faith. We pray that you would build very, very high walls around us, protect us and advance us. Show the world what manner of God lives among us. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me to hymn number 485, Like a River Glorious.